Thank you, Paul. Thank you, worship team. Good morning again, everyone. This morning we are going to be discussing Daniel chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den. I'm sure we are all familiar with that story. In fact, it occurred to me this week that when I say the, uh, that the phrase Daniel in the lion's den, it doesn't really cause any emotion to, to, to rise up in me. Imagine that, a man being tossed in a lion's den, torn apart potentially, and it, it, it causes really no emotion. I just say, yeah, Daniel in the lion's den. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. It occurred to me, though, that what if Instead of tossing Daniel in the lion's den, what if the king would have taken Daniel and taken his thumb and smashed it in a car door? Now, if you think about that, all of a sudden you're like, oh, that would be terrible, right? I mean, obviously there weren't cars there, but you could relate to that somewhat, right? So anyhow, I, I want us to try to, try to put away all the, uh, all, all the stories re we remember from childhood and so forth about Daniel and the lion's den and try to maybe take a, a fresh approach to it this morning. All right? Uh, let, let's just pray quickly. Father, uh, once again, once again, Lord, we know that without your Holy Spirit here, this is just a waste of time. This would be nothing more than setting through a high school history class. Father, we don't want that, Lord. We want that your Holy Spirit, we want this to reflect Jesus Christ, Lord, and bring us closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. All right, before we get to the story, before we get to chapter 6, I want to cover just a little bit in chapter 5, because that, that, that kind of leads us into chapter 6. So if we go all the way back to 539 B.C., all right, wrap your mind around that, 539 B.C., a Babylonian king named Belshazzar was putting on an incredibly large banquet for 1,000 of his closest friends. They were his nobles. The wine was flowing freely. The king's wives, yes, more than one wife. His concubines, yes, more than one concubine, were all in attendance and also drinking wine. So you're probably already thinking to yourself, hmm thousand people gathered together drinking wine and probably too much wine. This doesn't really sound like a good situation, and you would be correct. The king, while drinking his wine, decides it would be a good idea to have someone go and fetch the gold and silver cups that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem some 60 years earlier so that everyone could drink wine from these otherwise holy goblets. Then, almost as if Belshazzar, the king, had asked himself, is there anything I could do right now to make this situation even worse? What would it be? So as they were debasing the temple goblets by drinking the wine, they began to praise the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Imagine that scene. The holy cups from the temple of Jerusalem praising stone. And you'll remember this part suddenly. The fingers of a human hand appeared, no arm, just the hand, and wrote on the wall where the king could see everything that was happening. Here's what happened. His face turned pale, 
his knees knocked and his legs gave way. No one could translate the mysterious graffiti on the wall. So Daniel was brought in and translated the writing, which paraphrased basically said, Game over, king, you lose. That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. Darius, the Mede, conquered the kingdom. Darius was about 62 years old. And you can go to the book of Daniel, chapter 5, and read all the particulars. You can see the exact what the writing on the wall said. Uh, you'll have to do that on your own time. But you can read about all of that. But that leads into our story this morning, Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. If you're not there yet, Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the new kingdom 120 satraps, or governors, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account. And catch this, so that the king might not suffer loss. All right, we have, a, we have a ruler who doesn't want to suffer loss. Basically, he doesn't want to lose income, property, doesn't want to lose taxes. We all get that. It, there's, it's a long line between the outpost way out here somewhere out in the, uh, the Medo-Persian uh, Empire all the way back to uh, Babylon, and a lot can happen to tax money along the way corrupt officials. A lot of skimming can go on. And there's one thing we all get in this country is that when we send a dollar bill all the way to D.C., it tends not to get there in one piece. So we, we understand that. So the king appoints 120 men to keep an eye on things, and he appoints an upper layer of three additional men to keep an eye on the 120. So we're already beginning to see a system that's not brimming with honesty and men of good character. But let me put a little more history, a little more historical context to the story for us to remind us where we're at. Okay, Darius, the king who's in charge, there's a lot of speculation on who exactly who Darius was. There's a lot of commentaries. You can read a lot about that. We're not going to spend any time on that today. We're just going to go with the fact that he was the guy in charge. But you can, you, can, you can dig into that on your own. The prophet Daniel is one of the top three executives over the 120, keeping an eye, keeping an eye on him. And remember, Daniel was removed from Jerusalem 60, about 66 years earlier in 605 B.C., Remember when we talked about this a couple of sermons ago when the uh, Babylonians came in and sacked uh, the first wave, when they took the first wave of exiles out of Jerusalem? Daniel was one of those, 605 B.C., okay? We, we read about that in the, uh, the book of Jeremiah. Daniel has spent the greater part of his life in Babylon in upper-level management for the Babylonians. Just like he is performing now for the Medo-Persians under Darius. Okay? He's done this before. He's done this for a long time. Daniel would likely be in his early or mid-80s by now. Okay? Sometimes we can get used to seeing pictures of Daniel in the lion's den and he's only a teenager. That's not the way it worked out. He would have been in his 80s by now. 
this position for Daniel in this upper level uh, management position is perfect for Daniel. He's familiar with the region for one thing. They have the Medo Medo-Persians, they came in and took over the territory that the Babylonians previously had, and Daniel has already been an executive over those territories. He's perfect for the job. He's familiar with the job requirements. He's no doubt familiar with all the ways that lower-level government officials can skim the system. He would be familiar with all that. And even though he worked for the Babylonians for a long time, he wasn't one of them. He would have no allegiance towards the Babylonians. He w it wouldn't be risky to put him in charge in the new empire, in other words. And no doubt he had a reputation as an extremely honest manager throughout the area. Move on to verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Instead of being one of the top three, now he's going to be the top one right under the king. Verse 4, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. No doubt Daniel was getting in the way of these corrupt officials earning extra income in some unethical way. And on top of that, Daniel was about to be promoted, which would trigger jealousy, right? He was an exiled Jew, which would no doubt trigger ethnic prejudice. But keep in mind Daniel being in his 80s and having done this before for most of his life, he's probably be familiar with this type of attitude and behavior from his peers, right? He's probably seen this before. Verse 5, Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. This would have been a really good time for these corrupt officials to take a moment and do their homework before proceeding further. To just take a pause and ask themselves, hey, what do we know about Daniel's God anyway. Before we engage in setting this fantastic little trap, does any of us know anything about the Jews' God? Now, if they were to ask someone familiar with the Jews' history or maybe just go ask a Jew, they might find that God had parted the Red Sea at one time, provided 40 years of manna raining down in the desert, to a million or so Jews. He would, he, this same God caused rivers of water to flow out of a rock. But that was a long time ago. You could easily say, you know what? That was all good then, but this God obviously doesn't care a lot for these Jews anymore because didn't he allow them to be conquered? Didn't he allow them to be exiled by the Babylonians? 
didn't he allow their temple where they worshipped him to be completely destroyed? So maybe, maybe, you could, maybe you could rationalize it if they would have thought about it. Something they could not have found out about because Daniel... Ah, I'm sorry, let me go ahead. There is something else they could have found out about in recent history. Let me keep my pen in my hand. More recent history, they could have found out about the, after the exile, the three young men who Nebuchadnezzar had thrown into a hot furnace because they wouldn't uh, worship the idol. And the three men came out of this furnace without even the smell of burned clothes on them. That would have been maybe 60 or so years ago before this. And it would have been just within the last year they could have found out about the hand writing on the wall and Daniel interpreting what that writing meant. That would have just happened in the, in the, in the previous year if they would have done their homework. But now we get, to the, we get to the data that they could not have found out about, but other things that went on only that Daniel himself knew about. Daniel had, had, to, to Daniel, God had revealed the secret of future events. In visions and dreams, God showed Daniel the birth and collapse of future dynasties all the way to the end of time. Daniel had seen the Ancient of Days, God the Father. Daniel had seen the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. He had spoken with the angel Gabriel who helped Daniel understand mysterious meanings of visions. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute. Those events didn't happen until chapters 7 and 8. We're only in chapter 6. You have to remember that the book of Daniel doesn't occur in chronological order. The first six chapters are the events of Daniel's life. Chapters 7 through 12 are visions and prophecies. So as you're reading along, you'll see that chapters 7 and 8 occur before the whole Daniel and the lion's den. They occur before. So Daniel did. He's seen all these visions. you could almost come to a point where you start to feel a little bit sorry for the corrupt officials because they just don't know what they're dealing with, do they? Onward, verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. That's just how you greeted a king back then. Live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom the prefects and the satraps, the counselors, the governors, they are all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for the next 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Daniel's 
accusers were shrewd men. They wouldn't have risen to the level of where they're at with otherwise. Their plan depended on two predicted variables. One man to act out of a poor character and one man to act out of an honorable character. They relied on the king's pride and his ego that would influence him to sign the decree and they depended on Daniel to continue to pray to his God as was his custom regardless of the new law. At this point in the story, I had to stop myself and ask, is my character predictable enough that someone who knew me could bet on a certain outcome? Could someone say, oh yeah, given the chance, Bill will certainly cheat if given the opportunity. Or you can always count on him to be slack in his work. Or am I predictable for a good outcome? Doing good work, being honest, not losing my temper under stress. Something for me to think about, maybe something for you to think about too. How predictable are you? They told the king, everybody has agreed. All government officials at every level, king, they've agreed that only you should be prayed to. Except they didn't mention Daniel, did they? Daniel was going to be second in command. He wasn't in that agreement. Would have been, would have been a good idea for the king to find that out, right? I'm guessing the king may have said something like this, oh, go on, you guys. Okay, I'll go ahead and sign it. Everybody can pray to me. And he, he may have also uh, considered this was a good way to uh, solidify allegiance to him. You know, it's, it's a new territory. Uh, they just conquered it. Just having everybody pray to him for 30 days just might be a good idea. When the king signed the decree, the finality of the situation's outcome was like hearing the clicks on handcuffs as they go around somebody's wrist. It's well known from secular history, and we also know it from the book of Esther, when a Persian king signed a law, not even the king himself could revoke it. It was done. The corrupt officials must have loved seeing him put his signature on that. Now, if Darius would behave anything like a typical king would, Daniel would soon be a meal for lions. Just, if you just look back, you don't have to do it now, but if you look back to Daniel chapter 3, verse 13, you can see how Nebuchadnezzar responded when the three young men... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the, uh, to, to the 90-foot golden image after that became law. Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar's reaction? Even though these three men, they were also high-level administrators, very competent administrators for him. How did he react when he heard that? Verse 13 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought to him. And we know what happened after that. 
So it was a reasonable assumption that Darius would react the same way when he finds out that Daniel is not obeying the new law. It's not because the corrupt officials knew specifically the history of Nebuchadnezzar, but they knew generally how kings and their king-sized egos respond. On to verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Why was Daniel praying three times a day toward Jerusalem? When you read that, it almost sounds like what? almost sounds like a Muslim, right? Praying five times a day toward Mecca. It makes it kind of strange. But if you, th there's a reason behind it. If you go back about 400 years and you go back a whole bunch of books in your Bible to 2 Chronicles 6.36, I'm not going to go there, but if you want to go there, you should write this down, 2 Chronicles 6.36 through about 6.39, you'll have the answer to the question. It describes that but we don't have time to go there this morning. But why is Daniel praying publicly at all? First notice that this is what he had done previously. This was his habit. It was his routine. Daniel didn't begin a new behavior to show them that he wasn't going to be pushed around. There was no false pride involved in this act. He didn't move to an open window, so now all of a sudden he could be observed. But why couldn't he just move to another room? Why couldn't he wait until dark when nobody could see him? Why couldn't he just pray silently? Why couldn't he just pray, you know, on his, in his car on the drive to work, right? I mean, I, you, know, you, you get what I'm saying, right? How most people, yeah, you know, I don't really have a time of prayer. I pray on the way to work. You know, why couldn't he just do something like that? Well, for one thing, he would still be breaking the law, right? He'd still be breaking the law, only secretly. Another thing is, this was probably his habit for more than 60 years. He's in his 80s. Just because a group of corrupt officials have tricked the king it's probably not going to move Daniel to change his ways all of a sudden. But I also think that his reaction to the law is being observed by more than just the corrupt officials. I would tend to believe that he's probably being observed by the Jews in the city as well. He was a respected guy. People looked up to him. They were probably waiting to see what he was going to do. Was he going to go and hide or was he going to continue praying? If they wouldn't have seen Daniel, it probably would have damaged their faith in God. And finally, one of the most important themes of the book of Daniel, in my opinion, is the umbrella of protection that is created from Daniel's action. You've got to pay attention to this, not because it's complicated, because I find I'm really lousy at describing this. So bear with me. If we go back 
and we think of the reason of why the Jews are in exile to begin with, it's because in the book of Jeremiah, they're described as idol worshipers, right? The Jews had become idol worshipers. They were bowing down to anything that wouldn't move, basically. They were bowing to Baal. They were bowing to Moloch. They were sacrificing their children in fire. It had gotten really bad. That's why the Jews are in Babylon. And then early on, way early on in their captivity, we go back to these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are, they are ordered, instructed to bow down and worship the idol, and they refuse to do it to the point of threatened death. Okay, think about that. You have all these Jews in exile because they're worshiping idols, and now all of a sudden you have these three guys who refuse to worship idols to the point of death, and then they are miraculously rescued out of the fire. And what happened because of that? When Nebuchadnezzar, the king, saw that, here's what he decreed. He decreed, Therefore, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruin. So look what happened because of what these men were unwilling to do and put their lives at risk for. All of a sudden you have this umbrella of protection over the remnant of Jews in Babylon, right? But then Babylon gets conquered by the Medo-Persians. No more umbrella. So then you have this decree by the king that people can only pray to him. Way back in the, uh, in the pre-exile days, this probably would not have been a problem. Yeah, yeah, we don't mind. We'll pray to anything. But Daniel, once again, Daniel refused to do that to the point of threatened death. He was miraculously rescued. And what was the king's response? Now, we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit. But what was the king's response? The king declared an edict of protection for all the Jews under the new regime. So you see what happened here? God is still protecting this remnant, but only through the act of people who are willing to give up their lives to not do what the, all these other people were doing willingly. Think how convicting that would be if you were watching that, if you were a Jew and you saw this take place. Think how convicting that would be. Think of how if you, if you connect the dots forward, think how much this is just like Jesus on the cross, right? Just as an aside, almost everything about this Daniel and Lion's Den story, you can connect the dots to Jesus. It's a type, he's a type of Christ here. So anyways... Why does Daniel not go in hiding? Why is he praying? I think it has to do with we're just about to establish another umbrella of protection for the remnant under the new regime. Of course, Daniel wouldn't be aware of that. Verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king, Concerning the injunction, uh, King, 
Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. So just before they deliver Daniel to the king, the officials tighten the handcuff. One more click, just to be sure. Then they answered, verse 13, Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, which of course is not true, grossly overstated, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Now this is the point back with Nebuchadnezzar and, and the three young men where Nebuchadnezzar just lost it and flew into a rage, right? I mean, that's what you would expect. But what happens here? Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Boy, the officials had miscalculated. They miscalculated what the king's response would be. So right now, it says he, the king labored until the sun went down to rescue him. He's probably consulting legal advisors, trying to look for a loophole to get out of this decree. I imagine it's at this point when the king realizes he's been duped by the satraps. Every bit of this 30-day law on prayer had been part of a larger scheme, a scheme to have Daniel killed. Imagine what the king must be thinking to himself about now. These satraps have taken advantage of my ego and talked me into signing a law. And I was beginning to think they were right some god I am able to be so easily tricked and unable to help the person who I have essentially sentenced to death and cannot rescue. Some god Darius was totally helpless. Verse 15, Then these men came by agreement to the king and said, Just a reminder, king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Boy, I'll tell you what. At this point, you would think the satraps would, would realize that, boy, this has gone bad. This is not going like we hoped. Let's try to back away from this. Let's not be associated with this. Then, the, verse 16, then the king commanded... And Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went into his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Once again, we can see how ungodlike Darius really is. Notice how little we, little insight we get into what is happening with Daniel in the lion's den. 
you would think that that's where all the excitement is. That's where, that's where we would get some description. But no, we're, the, the text talks mostly about how the king spent his night. We're told that he didn't eat, he was restless, he couldn't sleep, he didn't have any entertainment. It just seems odd that so little space is spent on Daniel's night, but I think I might know why. I think if it was in there, it would probably be the most boring chapters in Scripture. Because what happened? It was basically Daniel sitting around with some lions all night. What's to tell? Meanwhile, the king was having one of his worst nights ever, no doubt. A lot going on there. Verse 19, Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. Boy, I, you just can't help it, but, but, but think of Jesus, right, in the tomb and people the next, you know, early in the morning, people rushing to see, is he there, right? So, so many comparisons. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The, clean, the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Remember, that's just the way you address kings back then. doesn't mean anything special. My God has sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Notice how Daniel makes that final point in there that he has done no harm to the king. It's completely true. Also must have had a little bit of a sting to it, right? For the king. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. So now we get an uh, insight on just how dangerous and how hungry those lions really were all night long. Totally, totally brutal that the whole family shares in the punishment of the father. But as I was reminiscing this week, even outside of ancient Persia, we see the same thing happen today. The head of a family behaves poorly and the wife and children suffer too. I've seen it recently and so have you. Verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth. And here's where he puts out his uh, umbrella of protection. Peace be multiplied to you. Make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Have you ever wondered what happened on day number two? That was just day number one of the 30-day edict. Remember, it can't be revoked for another 29 days. What happened the next day? 
I'm guessing you probably had Jews everywhere publicly praying to the real God, not Darius. Why? Because who's going to turn them in? Look what happened to the last group of guys that turned in somebody for praying. Plus, you've got this new edict here that Darius just put out that you tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. So I'm guessing there was a lot of praying going on everywhere. Now, what about you? What about us? Have we done our homework concerning the God of Daniel? If you're a believer and you're doing your homework, it'll make you more like the prophet Daniel. It'll increase your faith, right? If you're not a believer, I would strongly encourage you to do your homework today because there will come a time when you won't have a chance to do your homework anymore. Ask yourself, if you are not a believer, have I done my homework on Jesus Christ? Have I done my homework? Ask yourself and then answer that question. I remember back in high school when you showed up to class without doing your homework. That was a really bad feeling, right? Once the bell rang, it was too late. Your homework was done or it was not done. Make sure your homework is done. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a wonderful and faith-inspiring story about your prophet Daniel, a real man who lived, a real man who had amazing and trying events happen in his life, Lord. Father, we, we have events happen in our lives, Lord. May, may we remember the example of the prophet Daniel when we have difficult times, Lord, and look up to you and rely on you, Lord. Father, thank you for being in control of everything. You're not just in control of the little things, but you're in control of dynasties, the future. It's all laid out. Thank you, Father. And thank you for watching over us today in this new year. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.